I think there's a major topic of concern about going into dark places, which is, you know, like re-traumatizing somebody. Um, but I think my answer to that was just anytime I went to a dark place, just make sure you just don't leave them there. Hello, and welcome to On Assignment, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of award-winning reporting at Columbia Journalism School. My name is Abby Wright. I run the prizes program here, and I am joined, as always, by my colleague, Lisa Cohen, who runs the DuPont Awards. And Lisa, we just finished celebrating the 2019 DuPont winners. That's right. It was a great ceremony, and now we're all recovering. <laughs> Trying to recover. It was a packed house at Columbia's Low Library in the Rotunda. And we just had incredible winners that we are really excited to bring to you in conversations in the coming months. That's right. Every month, we'll mostly be talking to winners from 2019. I'm looking forward to it. But today, I'm excited about a new episode, which was a recent conversation that I had with director Bing Liu after we screened his documentary at a Film Friday screening. It's called Minding the Gap. Yeah, you might have heard of it. It's his first film, and as we found out recently, it has just been nominated for an Academy Award. That's right. We were very prescient, and uh, I don't know if they're going to submit it for next year's DuPont, but it'll be interesting to, to look for it. So I'm excited about this, but I'm also a little bit wary because it was a great conversation, but in order for it to make sense, we're going to have to explain several references, which will give away some of the film's big reveals. It's part of what makes the film so great, these oh-my-God moments that unravel all these themes. So consider this an official spoiler alert. You can either stop listening now and come back once you've seen the documentary, or stick with us and know the film is still so worth seeing, even if you won't be surprised by some of the incredibly dramatic reveals. Right. So, Abby, tell us what we need to know. Bing, our director filmmaker, grew up in Rockford, Illinois with his mother and brother. He's a longtime skateboarder, and he learned to use his camera actually filming his friends skateboarding, as skateboarders often do. That's right. So he wanted to make his first film about domestic violence using young skateboarders to talk about it. So he went around first uh, doing a series of interviews with them, and he quickly found out that that was really boring. And at the same time, he also went to work for the renowned Cartemquin Films. Over many years, they have made some incredible verite narrative films uh, to try to make sense of complex social issues, including Hoop Dreams. They are past DuPont winners for the series Hard Earned and The Interrupters that aired on Frontline. So after working with Cartemquin, Bing went back to his hometown and made a more narrative film with the people he knew he had known growing up. So here are the main characters that you need to know about. Kier, who's a young black man, and his story helps to kind of chronicle the story of race in America today. Um, Zach and Nina, who are boyfriend and girlfriend, and Zach turns out to be an abuser, which you'll learn more about in this conversation. And Bing himself, who didn't really want to be part of the film, but ends up being in the film. And you'll learn why. This is a really personal film about the pervasive, unrelenting issue of domestic violence. And it's a really up-close look at this subject that is, you know, dramatic and has all these turning points and big reveals. And we're going to signpost throughout the conversation just for those of you who haven't seen the film. Okay, so now that you've heard about Kier, Zach, Nina, and Bing himself, all in this film, here's an edited version of the conversation that I had with first-time director Bing Liu about his film Minding the Gap. I mean, it's sort of the typical question I'm sure you've answered it a million times, but how did you come to make this film, and how did you end up putting yourself in it? I'm 29 now. I was 23 when I started making it. I wanted to 
you know, the seed of it was I wanted to do this project about, you know, to try to get skateboarders engaged in things like child abuse and domestic violence. And so, you know, I've met people in the skate community over the years that I found to be really vulnerable and open to having these conversations. I, you know, drove around the country and started interviewing them. Then I met other people. And I tried to, you know, check off demographic boxes that were uh, maybe atypical. You were, you were doing a global... It was global, an ensemble film. It was a like a global survey. global approach. Yeah. yeah. And then a year and a half in, when I started working with Cartem Quinn, that was the first time I saw films like Hoop Dreams, these character-driven verite films. So I transitioned into that approach, but I had to choose, you know, characters to follow. And I'd met Kier a year and a half in uh, when I went back to Rockford. Oh, um, you didn't know him before? No, he's seven years younger. He knew who I was. That was where a lot of my access came from. Later, he told me he looked up to me growing up. Uh, yeah, and then, like, I found out Zach, who I knew a little bit better, um, was about to become a father. But my relationship with Kier is that, you know, um, I came back and it's like, oh, my God, my hero is, like, come back to, like, and he wants to, like, interview me, you know? Um, we weren't like the stand by me sort of friendship that the film is constructed. I guess people are yeah. taking away from the first act. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there is this sense of you were really tight and then you went back to figure I think out that's what me, I think that's maybe like a little bit of like people not really understanding how close knit skateboarders are, you know? It's in the fictitiousness of making skate videos. Like you watch skate videos all the time, like two guys just went on a trip for two weeks and it seems like they're friends forever because it's the genre of the skate video montage, you know? Right. And the skate video montage, oh my God. Were you on a skateboard for some of that? Were you, I was yeah. mostly running with like a, like a poor man's steady cam, a glide cam. So I taught myself how to, you know, run with that. And that way I could like, you know, run down these steps or go through gravel onto grass onto you know, cement without ever having to, and then being able to like go, you know, in front of them and weave in and out. I couldn't have done that in a skateboard. So it freed me up a lot. I see. So it, just, it felt like you were on a skateboard. Because I was going to ask you, did you ever get hurt? How do you do that? How do you? Escape? I got hurt running before. I like slipped on slippery surfaces and like fell. On the, but it wasn't actually hurt because I feel like as a skateboarder, one of the th- it's sort of like judo. You like learn how to fall. Okay, we're going to stop here and just tell you a pivotal plot point that you need to understand the next part of the conversation. As we already mentioned, this is a film about domestic violence. And uh, at one key point in the filming, and this is, you know, sort of a dramatic turning point, uh, Bing learns that his friend Zach is actually being physically violent to his girlfriend Nina. So that's, you know, a huge dramatic moment. Right, Right. for us and for Bing. Um, So he needs to ask Nina about it. And he does that, and she begs him not to ask Zach about it. Yeah, when she told you that, I mean... What was your response? Like, how did you feel? Did you feel like, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I, I believed her right away, but also I was like, I don't, I don't know if other people are going to believe her. And also, how do I move forward? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was tough. It, um, that was sort of when I started thinking about, like, am I going to be able to, like, can I even make this film anymore? But my solution kind of came out of that moment in that car, I think, where I, like, I was sort of, trying to get her on my side and seeing like why I want to confront Zach that I had seen this I think you know her silence there's a a consequence to that but also respecting like you know I have to respect her wishes because it's all tied into her safety and you know her choice and doing living the life that she wants but that's why you know I mean I, I didn't really enter the film until much later until um having feedback screenings and people asking me about you know, why I wasn't in the film after finding out all these connections I had to the story. 
but I didn't really want to really fully try it until Nina told me that she was being abused because after that I had to think in this ethical way like how do I move forward what gives me the right to move forward I, I thought of it less like I'm gonna go do therapy with my family I thought of it more like how do I build the filmmakers backstory up to make the audience a little bit more sympathetic towards this filmmaker who's gonna keep going down down huh. that road when you explained to her why you felt it was important, it helped you convince yourself why it was important? Yeah, I think it made me feel better. It made me feel like less like icky about continuing to, to move forward. So that's a little tricky because, you know, there's a whole question of trying to maintain some kind of distance and be objective or at least not get so involved journalistically. And that wasn't how you felt about it. No, I, I feel like I was a literature major in undergrad, and we just focused a lot on postmodern ideas of, you know, truth doesn't exist anymore, it's all subjective. And I feel like that's very true of the way that the media's language operates now. I think people are, you know, respond more in a, respond more tr to, to the truth of showing your cards. I don't know, I mean, like, I remember I took a journalism class, and the professor had us read a New Yorker article um, that had the journalist like in there, um, you know, they had their subjective experience in there. She was using it as an example of like why this is bad or wrong, and I, I remember disagreeing with it. So, for people who in the audience who are trying to figure out how to ask the tough questions, to be really personal, to feel like they're invading people, do you have any tips or any thoughts about how you? ask those kinds of questions or how you even how you psych yourself up to ask those kinds of questions uh just do a lot of it outside like outside of your filmmaking or your journalism like just do it in real life like that's the best way to learn that's what i did as a teenager i was like cornered people in parties and had them talk about their mom you know because it helped me like feel less alone and i i feel like i love living in that space i feel like that's just like if we went to, out to dinner right now, I'd probably ask you about your parents and <laughs> you have kids and, you know, I think that's just really interesting to me. So, uh, and then you just pick up like ways of, you know, like knowing how much people are going to give you access on an intuitive level so that you're not having to go like, okay, so we're going to talk about, you know, this traumatic thing, like let me know. Because then it's, it feels a little stiff and they have their guards up, you know. So it's, I guess it's about, sort of about like, you know, slipping into like tricking people into talking about it. And of course, if they're people, if people are uncomfortable, they'll just tell you to stop. You were yeah. really good at it. I mean, you sort of would wiggle around and, and say it in a way that was not, inv it didn't feel invasive. It felt like you were really curious. And it, I, it didn't put people's backs up. I mean, no one's, that's why I thought you were so close to them that you felt like you could ask those questions. Mm, I see. Yeah, no, I think we all have that ability to do it, and I think it's an acquired skill, and we can just learn how to do it. Um, and people, yeah, people can really sense when it's not about curiosity, when it's about something else. You know, I think people are really smart about that. But like, there is, a, I think, there's a major topic of concern about going into dark places, which is, you know, like re-traumatizing somebody. Yeah. Um, but I think my answer to that was just anytime we went to a dark place, just make sure you just don't leave them there. Okay, pack up, I gotta go, you know. Um, like Zach on that river, it was like we ended up talking for another hour off camera. We're going to tell you a little bit of background here to help you follow along. So in another just like astonishing scene, Bing does confront Zach and Zach just falls apart. You know, I really 
couldn't leave him in that spot emotionally where he was just so like in a dark in a, in a pit of wallowing in, in all the things that he hadn't processed or confronted before so when you say don't leave them there you mean continue the conversation until you kind of raise them back out of it in some way or they raise themselves back out of it in some way yeah zach was really feeling hopeless and you know he you know he's in a place where nothing meant anything and so, you know, I talked to him about his son, about, you know, like how smart and charismatic. And I just started talking about, all, you know, all the positive traits I saw in him and how hopeful the future can be, you know, like that he has volition. And I think he started to come around by the end. But the rest of that whole conversation, that whole idea of his self-destructiveness and his feelings of hopelessness, and it was extraordinary to see that come out of him. And did you expect that? Did you? Did no, you I didn't. I, you know, like here, like the first time we ever sat down in an interview, he, uh, he he bawled about his dad for like an hour and a half. Just like his whole story came out in one interview. And the rest of the time was just processing it and watching him grow up, get a job, move out of Rockford, you know. For Zach, it was like, it was almost frustrating because, you know, he always had this layer of like defense mechanism of humor, charisma. So eventually I was like, maybe he's just more left brain. Maybe he just doesn't operate in the same ways. Here. And then when that interview happened, at the beginning he was like, do you want the real shit or the fake shit, Bing? And I was like, I've always wanted the real shit, Zach. Little did I know he's going to go on to really give, you know, peel the onion in a way that I'd never seen it peeled before. And then it made me realize, oh no, he he's also very emotional and deals with these things, but it's just buried under many more layers. And he's someone who, you you know, throughout the film, I don't know about anyone else, but I found myself feeling drastically different things about him, like emotionally hating him, liking him, being charmed by him, you know, seeing him as this frail person, and then hating him again. Like, it was a real roller coaster. Yeah, I think what was exciting about that was, you know, I think a lot of films I see about domestic violence, you're... Perspective-wise, you're put in the perspective of someone who's like authoritarian or the outside friend or the onlooker. But here, I mean, what that does is it puts you in the position of someone in a relationship with Zach, um, and that's how it feels. It feels confusing and conflicted. How much of the film of the th what we saw as themes in the film about racism and manhood and economic disenfranchisement, and how much of that did you think was going to go in? Did you? In have intention to put in the film from the beginning and how much of it kind of appeared organically? You know, it started out very, like, way more theme issue driven. Like, the first assembly cut was, like, literally skateboarders on screen talking about, like, race and, uh, you know, violence and trauma. And I think part of what was great about learning the cinema verite sort of school of filmmaking was basically all these things can come out of organically out of characters' lives if you follow them long enough. But it took a long time to get it to work, to really get it to piece together and feel organic. And a lot of it was just really making that extra sacrifice. No matter how much you care about that issue, putting story first. And the best example is mm. that that racial thread wasn't working until like two months before Sundance. People just kept saying in feedback screenings, like, take race out of it. It's like, it's too distracting from the father-son thing. And it was, it was just like here, like talking almost, you know, removed from his story about how he feels about being black and how he feels about being black now and then you know, like once we got a story like really kicking and it was like oh this is about him moving out and this is about him dealing with his father and I called him and I was like you know Kier, what did your dad tell you about being a growing up black and he had all these things to say and I was like I'm buying a plane ticket tomorrow we did this interview 
you know, massage it into these verite scenes that were already there, and uh, and then nobody has question, nobody has like said take race out of it since then. So that was amazing because one of the things that really struck me was that you talk to the women, you talk to the mothers, and obviously you can talk to some of the fathers. I felt like you heard Kier's voice, the father's voice. I heard, I felt like he was in the film because so much of what Kier ended up talking about was th were the, the lessons that his father taught him, and they were great lessons. I mean, really, really profound. Yeah. At what point in the film did those news reports get added in? Because he, it felt like this is a very immersive experience. I felt like I learned, you know, I was informed, but there weren't a lot of facts. There wasn't a lot of context, right? And then there were, there were those news reports that were kind of context. Tell me about the chronology of that. The context took a while to figure out. I wasn't even paying attention to it at first, and then people would ask, like, why are the streets, how did you get the streets so empty? When did you go? And I was like, well, the 80s economy did that. You know, like, I didn't do that. So it was like, I didn't realize I'd explain Rockford, you know. And then the facts kind of came in different waves. At first, I, there was a couple cuts where I put, like, statistics at the beginning, you know, just on cards. And then, I don't know when the radio bites came in. I think it was like the final year or two. Uh, and I remember it was, being, it was very divisive in the room. People were like, no, it doesn't work. It bumps me out. And I've ultimately had to make the choice, like, do I want context or do I want this purity of, of like aesthetic? You know, and I think the context won out. I think out. it helped, yeah. yeah. Okay, so last year or two, let's talk a little bit about how much time you spent filming, how much time you spent in the edit room, how many cuts, like... This was a very, very long project, right? Yeah, it's it's kind of countless. I mean, it was sort of something I did in my bedroom for a long time. And then, you know, as any time I had free time, I would just do it. I mean, we shot for 252 days. Spread out over how long? Five years, five, six years, yeah. And when did the money come in? 2016, we made it past the first round of ITVS, which is our closest form to the Canadian Film Board or the French Film Board, you know, commissioning a film. Very competitive. They fund independent documentaries in the six figures. We made it past the first round, and then beginning in 2017, we found out we got it. So that changed everything. That allowed us to finish the film. Um, I met my producer through Cartempoin in 2016. She had started helping me write grants. And then in 2017, with this money, we were able to, you know, start looking for a composer and an editor and Come to find out most of those high level ones, they're like booked like two years in advance. But it was nice. I was I had so many feedback screenings. I also would just try to get feedback however I could, which is a hard thing. First to like get out of your own comfort zone and then like do that. But then once you are out of your comfort once you are comfortable just getting feedback, it's like I couldn't get enough feedback, you know. And so even when some an editor wasn't available, you know, we'd be talking to them, I'd still, you know, kinda get free feedback and be like, What do you think of the, the cut that we sent you? you know? How do you know when you're finished filming a Verite film? Um, when we found out we got into Sundance, and I just, I'm serious. We probably would have kept filming because I, I Kier moved to Denver in 2016. I kept going back to Denver and like following up at many shoot dates in Denver with Kier. So there's a lot that's not. So many. There's whole storylines, whole characters um, that you know are within the friend group that are. You hear all that, guys out there. Is this journalism? Not in the, like the tradition. I, I don't know. <laughs> That's such a... <laughs> Are you, do you consider yourself a journalist? I consider myself a storyteller with a moral compass, with like a moral code. 
I don't know. I mean, I didn't. I took like one journalism class in college, so I don't. I feel like I don't have the authority to really be able to compare it. Yeah. yeah. Were there things that you ended up doing in this film that you thought to yourself, if I were a journalist, it, that would not fly, or do you not know enough about the rules to know that? I feel like I understood filmmaking is not journalism through working with, like Cartemp like Gordon at Cartempkin like talks about this a lot he, you know um, the documentary filmmakers uh, do something different from journalism there's still rules there but it's it's not journalism how's everybody doing in this film very differently uh Kier's in in he moved to Phoenix he's 22 years old um, he's just sort of figuring things out so he was he in Denver, started, and then he went to Phoenix. Yeah, right? exactly. He started over. His his girlfriend, who he uh, had met in Denver, uh, is from Arizona, so that was one of the reasons why. And so yeah, that's where he, what he's doing. Zach uh, he's still roofing. He got casted for a fiction film, low budget. I Zach. read that. Um, yeah, it's kind of wild. And he's an actor. He's an actor, sort of. He's an actor. He's acting. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's, Always acting. He's about the, exactly right. <laughs> Never not. Uh, he's uh, about to have a second child with Sam, who you know you saw in the film. They're buying a house together. My mom is, you know, trying to sell that house with all the horrible memories in it. She's living with, you know, that her new husband, who's a really great guy. Oh, that's great. Um, hopefully, she'll retire soon. You know, like just stop working. Brothers working in a couple of restaurants in Rockford. Nina, um, she you know, like the the sort of demands of single motherhood for the most part has kept her from going back to school like she wanted to. But her, you know, she's come out to a lot of screenings this year and like really found uh, her story to be validated through women opening up to her. That's great. That's actually my next question, which is, how was it for them to, first of all, to see the film? Because I know you talk about how you agreed to show them the film before you put it out there, right? Yeah, that's something that, you know, I found out later that not all documentary filmmakers do, but it's something Kartempkin really believes in. And it's because they think a lot about ethics and power structures, you know, between you and what they usually call subjects. You know, like you're asking a lot more from them than a journalistic piece that, you know, where you go and you spend some time with them, you write something about them. You're asking for, you know, an intrusive sort of thing. So you find little ways to give little bits of power back to them and, and autonomy. And so one of the ways we do that, especially with people who, you know, don't have a lot of power, like um, the people that I followed, um, you know, is one way of doing that. Uh, if you're following someone like Anthony Weiner, I don't think you have the same obligation to show Anthony Weiner the film before you. But yeah, so they knew pretty early on that we're going to do that, that, that day was going to come. But uh, it didn't stop there. I left the door open for them to, you know, express any times where they felt like, you know, they were nervous or uncomfortable by what we were capturing. And so they would text me with things, you know, over the years too. And so just to be clear, you said, well, I'll show you the film before I put it out there. Did you also say to them, if there are things you don't like, I'll take them out of the film? I did not. I said, it was more like, we'll take your input, you know, I want to consider what you feel. The point of it would be, you know, we don't want to misrepresent you. We don't want to release a film that you're not on board with. But at the same time, ultimately it's our, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the final decision. And I also had to accept the fact that, like, you know, if we didn't find some way to release a film that we're all on board with, there won't be a film. That actually was, like, very freeing to finally, like, you know, come to that conclusion. You wouldn't have released the film if people were unhappy with it. I had to, I had to confront that fact much, you know, much earlier than actually showing them the film so that I could sleep at night. 
because I was getting to that point where it's like, I, I just don't know. This is such a deeply personal. What does it mean for us to be telling stories like this? What is, ex, you know, what is exploitative and what isn't? Like, how do we... Would you, if someone, if, if Zach had said, like, I don't want to be in this. Just, I look terrible. Or you have to change this. Or you have to, like, what would, or, and did he do any of that? He didn't do any of it. But my plan was would have just been like, okay. And, like, either gone back later, you know. Like, I think if he would have been really upset or angry, I don't think that would have been the best time to, like, persuade him about... You know, maybe you're seeing it like a little bit, you know, too stilted or with that you need more perspective. But you know, he was he was just crying at the end, and he, I think he's really surprised that my story was in it. Everybody was. Um, oh, they didn't sure. know. They didn't know. Um, yeah, I mean, he was like, okay, like. This. Did they all watch it together? No, it was all separate. Yeah, Nina took it the hardest. She was like sobbing throughout. That is because she uh, fell back in love with him, and then was very much emotionally destroyed by you know, the promise of what was, you know, she saw how great it was at the beginning, the promise of the relationship. And so we processed it with her. And like I said, like over the course of this year, she's really gained strength. And, you know, a lot of women coming up to her and being like, oh my God, like when I was your age, I went through something like this, but I never talked about her. I never like found this sense of autonomy um, or agency. And so she's gained a real sense of voice. Kier was a like this I don't know like an antenna for emo- for his own emotions like every time he laughed on screen he would laugh in person every time he cried on screen he'd cry in person huh. and I sat in a couch with him and um, you know it was it was like rumbling with his laughter and rumbling also with his crying my mom and brother I sent them a link and my mom said she was just proud of me so at this point I opened up the conversation to questions from the audience Yeah, and a lot of them had questions about Bing's role in the story and how he made the decision to include himself in the narrative, especially the deeply moving scene where he confronts his mom about why she stayed in an abusive relationship with his stepdad. My question is a hard question. What happened to you? What was it that percolated up inside of you that you got to the point where you confronted your mother about uh, the abuse that had been done to you. And you, of course, can decline if it's too painful for you to say. Uh, But I wondered. Thank you. Um, I think we have a lot of blind spots. Uh, My mom and I weren't that close growing up. And, you know, over the course of many years, I filmed one day with my mom. You know, I filmed many days with Zach and Kier. Um, so that was a very, uh, very stilted sort of moment when I did that. But at the time, you know, because of how I thought of like the filmmaker as character in the film, I was like, well, I'm gonna go get back. I'm gonna go seek backstory for this character that is the filmmaker. And when I went out to do that, it, you know, it seemed like a, it was very emotional. I knew it was gonna be useful. And then I kept trying to cut that scene and cut it a couple times, and it was very expository, and people weren't quite sure what to make of it. And what do you mean? Feedbacks. It was like, it was, I mean, I don't remember like what the cuts were, but I know that it was, it lacked emotion. It was like, well, this is my mom. This is the job she did. My mom is just telling me for the audience that I grew up skateboarding and filming and she didn't understand why, things like that. And then when I started working with my finishing editor in 2017, it's, uh, he, it's almost his first pass that scene was what you see in the film. He pulled the confrontation within that two-hour interview that I was blind to. I didn't even realize I did that. So actually bouncing off the previous question, when you interviewed your mother about, you know, about the film, um, what kind of preparations did you have to take? Or 
how long did you spend preparing for that interview? Because I, I guess it's a very personal and difficult interview to do. And yeah, your feelings coming out of that, that one particular interview. Thanks. Yeah, I think I just won it. Um, wing, winged it? Wong it? Um, I think it's Wong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the process of asking her even was very simple. Hey, mom, can, can I interview you for this project I've been doing for a while? She was like, yeah, and then what date? <laughs> it just became, like, the rest of the emails were, like, just trying to get a date down. That was it? That was it. You didn't have to talk her into anything? No. Yeah. And that was the only interview that you did with her? Yeah. So there was no setup. There was no, like, this is what there we're going to be talking about. I didn't even write any questions down. Um, I just knew, you know, I just knew we were going to have a long sit down and we were going to just explore the past. That's, it was, it was extraordinary. And was she uh, uh, unhappy about the way it went or did she feel relieved to be able to say some of these things or what was her response? I think these things are just like held in. I mean, she was with him for 17 years. You know, I was, I lived in a house for over a decade. Felt like I was walking in eggshells every day. I mean, that stuff just doesn't go, you know, away after one conversation right. where it gets slightly emotional. I think it just really lives within us. The big takeaway, I think, was um, we both understood what we felt about the past in a new way. And I think that's, the, the growth came in, I think that, that was the most tangible, palpable growth. How, but how did, how did it change how you felt about the past? Oh, um, I felt like I could accept that I did feel anger towards her and I did blame her. That was something I think I felt too guilty. Like the guilt and the anger were just really pounding at each other in a way that left me like messed up. And I think from that interview, you know, I could start accepting that, yes, I have these feelings of blame towards her and that's okay. Uh, you spoke about kind of when you're behind the camera and you see a moment happen. How did you go editing the scenes of you talking to your mom like how did it go kind of flipping it on yourself and editing your own scenes i mean i tried it but it wasn't and also i was just working with transcripts it's too hard to look at the raw footage especially mm -hmm. for that so i just worked with transcripts it was too hard for you emotionally too hard for me emotionally yeah to i didn't want to go back there it was really uncomfortable but i tried cutting i mean i just i ultimately like that scene is one of my great failures i just never really got it by the time i started working with my co-editor like all the scenes are pretty much working they just needed to be restructured but Anything with me and my brother, even that skate shop owner, like I had too many blind spots. I needed somebody else to edit. I'd like to ask you if you could talk a little bit more about Rockford. One of the things that I thought was really remarkable about the film is that that landscape is so recognizable. It's such an American Rust Belt landscape. And if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, obviously domestic violence, social decline, this doesn't occur in a vacuum. And, you know, were you thinking about that? About, I mean, could you, could you just say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I wanted to be careful. And this goes back to sort of like putting story ab above issue and like really honoring their lives as they experienced it and as they see it. I, w I wanted to be careful not to blame violence in the family on place or status or geography because that's one of the great myths of domestic violence is that it only happens in families of color or poor families or working class families. It, it's everywhere. What I found about films that deal with uh, communities that um, are struggling in a socioeconomic way, you can almost feel the downward perspective and how the place is seen. But to actually live and grow up in a place like that, that's not how it feels. Like what's tr more truthful is that you have a holistic, 
you know, palette of like hope and joy and sadness. And, you know, you feel bummed about the place sometimes, but, you know, you make it work. And there's sort of a gritty pride in growing up there. I think, I think that's, you know, what all the guys felt and the women too. Although there were these moments in the film that seemed to exemplify what they're up against, which is, you know, someone seems to start to come out ahead a little bit and all of his money gets stolen or, you know, someone absconds with his half of the skateboard, you know, and there they are, once again, sort of pushed down. It doesn't bode well for, like, mental health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's what's great about, you know, well, not great, but, like, that's what was useful about things actually happening from their lives. Um, you know, like, we didn't have to uh, put up a statistic or have some expert talking about, you know, the way that um, opportunities and that safety line of um, things and mistakes going wrong, you know, that's, there's a lot less of them in places like Rockford. You just see it because that's, it's affecting their lives like right now. I really love your line about putting story before issue. I'm wondering when did you know exactly what the story was and did you ever lose sight of the story with all the characters and all the components? And how did you kind of keep yourself guided in figuring out how to carve out the story? Spoken like a doc student. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. Well, I actually, I just trusted the story was going to come in the edit. I mean, that's just what I kept hearing over and over. Like, you know, the editing is the writing in documentary. You know, the sense of discovery is a lot more space sprinkled throughout, whereas in fiction, you know, all that discovery sort of happens before you, you even roll a single frame. So I, I, can't, I think I just trusted that. I just kept editing, like, every time. And then I, I, something would pop, come up, you know, you, you can even feel it while you're filming. And it's like, oh, this changes everything. Like, Nina telling me that Zach is abusive, this this means like a whole this like blows up the film so i guess it was yeah sort of bouncing between discovery and trying to like rewrite over and over and over again how long was the edit i mean i started cutting and as soon as i started shooting it was like i would just cut scenes and like it sprinkle scenes together and i mean my first like real rough cut didn't happen until like 2015 um, that's when I had a feedback screening at Cartemquin. And what resemblance did it bear to this finished film? Not much. I mean, I, th I remember one of Cartemquin's editors, they were like, Bing, I, I see you editing both for issue and story. Because of your footage and your access, you have a strong case for this film to edit just for story. And it took me a while to really like understand what he meant fully. Could you talk at all about, you said it wasn't necessarily socioeconomic that had to do with domestic violence at the point you're at now. Can you say anything at all about what you have learned about causes or symptoms or potential ways to deal with it? Oh yeah, there's so much. Um, I think the film's argument is with all the obstacles, like there's, you can still find room for volition. Like you control your actions. You can, you know, it's, I mean, what's interesting is documentary and storytelling and journalism, I think, parallel domestic violence and violence in the home in the same way. And that's the issue between public and private. Like, what do you keep public and what do you keep private? Like, in our country, we really value privacy and, like, just keeping, you know, your business, your business. But that's the Personal exact freedom. barrier. Yeah, and, th and that's the exact barrier to, you know, really ousting violence that's happening, being able to call it out without shame or fear of, you know, not being believed or retribution from the community. In the storytelling space, it's sort of similar. I mean, you know, you're sort of like negotiating for that space always. Like, what can we keep private, and, and like, what do we make public for the for the good of others or for the good of yourself? Maybe 
that that one's been bugging me the most because it's like intractable. Everything else sort of makes sense. Like I think you know the masculine script doesn't work anymore. It has a lot to do with like not teaching how to deal with emotions. There's like laws in the books about restraining orders and domestic violence that just don't make sense. That hurt the situation a lot of the times. Police forces like aren't educated enough to know how to deal with uh, violence okay. DV calls when they show up in the scene. And educating um, young people who to break cycles of what they've grown up with, what they've seen, what they think is the way things need to be or are. Yeah, and and also like educating bystanders or like people who are in the know. There were so many people who knew about what was happening between Zach and Nina, and they just didn't say anything. You know, there were people that knew about my mom, and my stepdad. They didn't say anything just you know having that script to be able to you know take that courage to make the public make the private public in that sphere too that i heard this npr article about that happening on college campuses for sexual assault it's like now their their training is more uh, geared towards bystanders and teaching bystanders how to whistle blow right. you're finding that more effective because the perpetrators are a relatively smaller amount of the population so i don't know it's i mean it's such a complex it's a big issue. question yeah Sorry, it's a big question to ask you. I feel like I could ask you questions for another hour, but you're probably really tired, and I mean, it was just, there was so much to unpack in this film, and oh, here's my last question. Are you, you, you sound as though you're gonna follow up? Like, there'll be more? There'll be part duh? I don't know, I think if it feels right, if they're down for it. Um, I would love to, in like 10 years or something. Yeah, I think that'd be really interesting. I would love for you to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming, Bing. Thank you. Thank you again to Bing Liu, and good luck at the Oscars. Although, of course, we should mention here that at another of our Film Friday screenings, which we turned into a podcast, was a screening of the documentary RBG with our own Columbia J School team, directors Betsy West and Julie Cohen. RBG just won a DuPont last week, and it has also been nominated for an Oscar, which makes it some tough competition for Minding the Gap. Yeah, good luck to both of them. Lisa, what else do we have coming up on the podcast? Well, as we said earlier, throughout the year, we'll be bringing you conversations with our 2019 winners, uh, as well as some of the events we sponsor here at the J School. And we'll be hearing soon from the directors of a hard-hitting documentary that Juana DuPont called I Am Evidence, which really brought the issue of untested rape kits to life. Another one of these issues that is sort of every year, it's still this entrenched problem, right? That's right. Wow. They won a 2019 DuPont, and they just showed their film here at Film Fridays. So that's just one example. I look forward to hearing it. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J School grad Sarah Wyman with the help of our DuPont fellows, Christina Shaman and Sarah Jenks. Our sound engineer was A.J. Mangone, and our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at DuPont Awards, and visit us at onassignmentpodcast.org. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>